0: Hey, it's me. Hello and welcome to the Paul Leslie Hour. I'm honored that you're here. Thank you for choosing us. If you want to keep the mission of the Paul Leslie Hour going, you can do so. Any amount, small, medium, or large is most appreciated, and it goes into keeping this show going. Just go to thepaulleslie.com. You'll see what to do from there. This is an interview that was recorded face-to-face a few years back. It aired on the radio originally. This is an interview with pedal steel guitarist, studio musician, performer, and member of the Coral Reefer Band, that's Jimmy Buffett's band, Doyle Grisham. Doyle Grisham is the guest. We recorded this at his hotel room. Doyle's pedal steel guitar playing was once referred to as Tasty by Rolling Stone Magazine, and I have to agree. Some of the artists he has recorded with, it's a long list. I'll go through a few. Lynn Anderson, England Dan and John Ford Coley, Bill Anderson, Peter Yarrow of Peter, Paul, and Mary, Kenny Rogers in the first edition, Dickie Lee, Jim Glaser, George Jones, Reba McIntyre, Dan Steele's, Randy Travis, Mel Tillis, Tiny Tim, and of course... Countless albums from Jimmy Buffett. All of those great classic Buffett songs from the 1970s that featured the pedal steel guitar. You know, Come Monday, Why Don't We Get Drunk, He Went to Paris. There's a long list of those. All of those, you're hearing Doyle Grisham on pedal steel guitar. In fact, with the exception of one Buffett album, every Buffett album which features pedal steel guitar owes credit to Doyle Grisham. There was one track, actually, I think, on the Somewhere Over China album that featured a different player. So this is an interview. We get the complete story about how Doyle Grisham started on the pedal steel guitar and about the great career he's had. He's a humble man, a sweet guy, and very, very talented. I hope you all enjoy. Let me know what you think.
1: The Paul Leslie Interviews. Well, we're welcoming Mr. Doyle Grisham on the show today. Well, I'm glad to be here, Paul. I Thank you for taking the time to do this. So you're the pedal steel guitar player. And what gave you the decision to want to take up that instrument?
2: Well, I guess I, I was in my early 20s, 20 or 21 I had always liked the instrument, but before that, I had been playing electric guitar in bands for years. Cause I started playing nightclubs and things like that in Texas when I was about 14 or 15 years old as a, you know, as a musician, just cause I liked to play and brought in extra money for me to buy cars and guitars and whatever else a teenager does, you know, with his money. But, uh, during that time, uh, I'd always, the pedal steel had come into existence. Before they were just what we call the stand-up steel guitars. They, they had about six or eight strings on them and they had kind of one limited sound, which was kind of like Hawaiian type music. But then the pedals come out and they did, they started pulling the strings and so you could make different chords and different sounds with it. And it gave a whole new, uh, outlook to the sound of the instrument. And I kind of took a liking into that, and about the time that uh, I'm talking about, when I was about 20 or 21, it seemed to be there was a guitar player on every corner of the street, and uh, there wasn't many pedal steel guitar players, and country music was going pretty strong, and I said, well, I like both of those, and I'm just going to try to learn how to play it, and Actually, it was the best move I ever made because if I'd have stayed only with the electric guitar, I was a good guitar player. But I i don't know if I would have had it advanced to the degree that maybe I've accomplished, if you want to call it that, with the pedal steel. Because at that time, there wasn't many of them around, like I'm saying. And I did learn pretty fast because I was a school musician up to a point. So it didn't take me long to learn the instrument, just the tech. Learn the technique on it and learn how to play the way I guess I play now. Uh, you know, took uh, a little while, but actually I was within, uh, six to eight months or so, I was out doing recording sessions in Dallas where I was living at the time and, and playing live jobs. And because that's, that's just how quick I, I learned on it. But you know, it's just like any instrument you learn, but then to really get advanced. It does take time, you know it's just like a great violinist, I'm sure they started out playing good at some point, but then they got great at some point, or you know what i'm saying its it just it it's taken all these years for me to probably get to the point to where I play now, but uh when I first started, I learned fast and I would but to answer your question, uh, I went the long way around it's, it's just because I was interested in it. it sounded good to me at the time, and i I wanted to learn to play it.
1: And you've played with so many people. I was looking, I was amazed. You played with George
2: Jones? Yeah, I actually didn't tour with all those people, but I played on some of their records just because when I moved to Nashville in the 60s, and more especially the early 70s, I started getting involved in studio work. And from that time up till now, I did a lot of recording with different artists and it's just a simple matter of, uh, somebody liking your plan, a producer, so to speak. I mean, George Jones might not have liked my plan, but his producer did. And, and he went along with it because that's kind of what, what artists do. You know, they just, the producers hired by the record label and the artists just kind of fall, you know, they accept what he does up to a point. I've been lucky to, you know, to be on a lot of major, uh, recording artist records over the years.
1: I was listening to, uh, a, a few of uh, some Buffett songs. And I always, whenever I hear like the, the twangy sound, I always say, oh, that's got to be Doyle Grisham because pretty much you played, you know, all the classic Buffett recordings. That's you.
2: Yeah, the only, I think the only album, and I could be wrong on this, that I didn't play all the steel work, I think was somewhere over China. I think uh, Al Divino, or, or DeVito, Which I, who I don't even know, I think he's a Memphis steel player that either Buffett or Buffett's uh, producer at that time was affiliated with. And at that time that that album was recorded, I wasn't, I had to quit doing Buffett's albums. I guess to explain during the, about 70 or 71 is when I first started recording with Jimmy Buffett. We did about four or five albums up until about. A1A or Havana Daydream in that area, right before Margaritaville. But when he recorded Margaritaville, he used his own band and kind of moved away from the Nashville scene. So after that is when Somewhere Over China was recorded some several years later, and he had already been recording everywhere else. So I wasn't in, like, doing every record, every album at that point. But yeah, I guess I'm about the only steel player other than that one instance, that one album that, uh, has ever been on any of his recordings that I'm aware of.
1: So what pedal steel guitar players out there do you, uh, do you put at a level that you think that's a, that's a great player? So I know you were nominated. You've had some honors. So, uh, who would you say is, who are your influences?
2: Well, I was influenced in my early years by, a guy named Buddy Emmons and Jimmy Day. They were actually the top steel players of that era, in my opinion. Uh, mainly because there wasn't many other ones around. You know, what I mean, they kind of, it's kind of like Les Paul and the electric guitar. He invented and, and, and brought out so many things that we we're using today along with the guitar. And that's what these two. Steel guitar players did at the time. They were innovators in setting up the pedal steel to where it is today. And we're still playing some of their licks, still using some of their pedal setups on the guitar. And plus, they were great players. They still are today. Buddy Emmons is one of the world's best steel guitar players. He can just, there's just not much he can't do with a steel guitar. So, but there were so many others. I don't necessarily just say they were the only ones, but they were the ones that really I noticed first because I was more aware of them and for what they were doing to the instrument because it was such a new instrument from around the late 50s up until the a few years later when I started playing.
1: And what kind of music do you listen to in your downtime?
2: Well... I listen to all kinds. I, lo- I love all kinds. And I still play some electric guitar you know, with, on recordings and things. So I have to do, not have to do, but I I'll, I'll, I'll get involved in even rock and roll, you know. But my personal preference is kind of a broad extreme. I like the old traditional country music like Ray Price, Buck Owens, George Jones, Merle, Merle Haggard, Lefty Sale, And on the other end, I like jazz. And in between... I like a lot of other things, but not as much. If I was to go, you know, would be traveling on a plane and bring out my iPod or, or CDs to listen to. That's what I'd listen to. I'd be listening to Merle Haggard maybe one one time, and then I'd be listening to Johnny Smith or some guitar player on the other end. So I have a broad range, and it's kind of at both ends of the music spectrum, but... Uh, it's kind of, it kind of keeps me uh you know fresh in a sense you know musically because there's i don't know it's just what I've always liked you know and western swing I like western swing music but it's 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 more it's kind of tied in with the two Western swing kind of came about because of country musicians that like to play something in their minds a little bit more sophisticated than just country hmm. so they started playing the jazz tunes and things and making their own versions of it and kind of western swing come about and then trying to emulate big band instruments big band sounds with country instruments but it just come about you know an an evolution of 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 that so i hope that answers your question sure you
1: uh in the article that, uh, Danny Raspberry wrote, it mentioned that when you first met Buffett, he said, yeah, you need to play on my record. And you said, yeah, you know, you were thinking, yeah, I've heard that before. And
2: yeah. <laughs> it, it, ironically, that is, that is what happened. I was, I, how I met uh, Jimmy was, uh, I was working with a group called Tom Paul and the Glazer Brothers. They were a grand old Opry trio singing trio that at the in the 60s and 70s they were the of the top vocal groups of every year i mean they were great uh, singers they were uh, trio so i was playing in their band and we were recording they like to do things a little bit not totally country but use the country influence along with them so we were cutting a song that jimmy and buzz casin had written called Ten Cup Chalice. And unbeknownst to me, I didn't know either. One, I think I knew Buzz Cason a little bit. He was a producer around town, and I got to working for him later on as a musician a lot. But Buzz Cason and Jimmy came by, Tom Paul and the Glazer Brothers recording session. And I guess they Jimmy heard something he liked and what I was doing, and so he asked, that's when he asked me. He said, "I'm fixing to do a major recording. I've got a major recording contract with ABC Dunhill, and I'd like you to play on my album." And like I said, you know, me not knowing him anything, I did think, "Yeah, well, okay, yeah." I'll <laughs> say yes, and probably never hear from him again. But about a month later, they called, and as I mentioned a while ago, uh, I did about four or five albums with Jimmy right straight in a row up till up till the time he recorded margaritaville and at that time he was using like he'd pick me you know as a steel player and he'd pick other guys in the band he really didn't have a coral reefer band at that point it was called that on you know uh and he'd put marvin gardens as the some of the you know that kind of thing as the some of the band members but uh He was just hiring, uh, him and his producer there again, was just hiring individual players to come play on the the records. And luckily, I I was lucky enough to be on the first four or five albums. But then when he did Margaritaville, he used his whole entire band, I believe. And that kind of headed him off into the kind of where he is now, and kind of what I'd call a Jimmy Buffett rock, pop, uh, island, type of sound i don't know it's hard to categorize jimmy's music It's just jimmy buffett yeah but it took a it was an evolution of of from the time when we started when it was a little more country and then adding the the distorted guitars and more synthesizers it evolved into what and the horns to what you're hearing on stage nowadays and his records too what was your impression of him when you met him oh I, nothing like it you're talking about recording wise well, I, I guess I could answer that either way. He was, he's a different person than anybody I ever, ever met. He was more, I don't know, you could kind of, he had a certain vibe about him. You know, it's just a fresh type of approach to anybody I'd ever been around. And at that time, I was around not all, uh, country artists because even I was, I was telling you, I was working with Tom, Paul and the Glazer brothers. Well, they, they had published songs like Woman, Woman, Gentle on My Mind. And so I, was, I wasn't i associated or playing on those records, but I was associated with they took in these kind of writers into their company. So they weren't all just totally country writers. But although Jimmy wasn't writing for their country, I noticed that a difference about him. I mean, he wasn't writing for their company, but I noticed how fresh and different his songs were. And they weren't, I wouldn't have classified it, classified them as country at that point. I don't know. Kind of like now. What do you classify? They was, it was just Jimmy Buffett then. Mm-hmm. And, uh, although Railroad Lady and Great Fillion Station Hold Up, they have a country flavor to them and they're chord wise. They're relatively simple songs, but still they were so new and fresh. And the way we were doing them was, different in itself too you know because nobody was telling us what to do we were kind of playing what we felt like playing and just our own i guess certain type of playing along with jimmy's songs and the way he sang them kind of gave him the sound that they wanted at that time
1: and how did you come to uh
2: start touring with jimmy that was quite a while from the Oh yeah, that was that wasn't until ninety nineteen ninety nine. He, uh, like I said, the, the kind of the chron uh, uh, the the uh, order of events there is from about seventy till seventy four. I did a few albums with Jimmy, and then from about seventy four up till ninety nine, he'd call me in occasionally to maybe play a on one or two songs, you know, on a certain album or so. Not many, but kind of lost kind of contact with him other than just knowing he was around. But in 99, they called me back, 1999, to to play on Beach House on the Moon album. And at that time, he was joking with me about touring with him. In fact, I was going to come out and just set in with them one night when they played somewhere just for the heck of it. But it wasn't a couple of months later they called me on the phone and asked me, said, would you be interested in touring with Jimmy? And I said, yeah. And so about a couple of days later, Jimmy himself called me, and we talked about it, and uh, I agreed to come out and tour. So that was 1999. But after all, I've known him ever since uh, probably 70, 71. Hmm.
1: So when you're playing up there on stage, uh, is there any song in particular you really love
2: to play? I still love Come Monday. I not just because I played on it and for what I played on it it's not for that reason it's because at the time we recorded it and even today is one of them, I thought it' was one of the best songs I'd ever heard. It's my favorite one of my favorite all-time songs. It's well written. I think it's a timely song. I think it'll be as good thirty years from now as it is today tells a great story it's musically different than a lot of songs
1: and you get to play lead on it
2: yeah ironically (laughs) along with that i get to to play and and enjoy the song for that reason too
1: so i'm just curious about this when you're not on stage when you guys are just uh in between show dates what do you guys what do you in particular like to do with your time
2: well i uh Oh, well, you mean when we're at, when we're on the road or when I'm off the road?
0: Well, both actually.
2: Well, when I'm off the road, I like to fish. And also I got a little home studio where I do may have personal clients that come in and I help them do recordings and things that they either couldn't afford or really don't want to do in bigger, uh, environments, you know, and with a the advent of computers and and all the technology out today, you can sit in a a room and do a record. You know, you don't necessarily need a big studio. And, of course, there'd be people that's going to have an opinion about that. Naturally, a big studio is going to sound a lot better. But years ago, you couldn't sit in a room with a little tape recorder and and do any kind of record because the, the noise from the tape recorder would, you know the tape hiss and all would would just drown out the sound after a while. It would, would become unpleasant. But nowadays, it's, with all the things we can do to clean up records, I mean uh, audio, and make everything work right with computers, you can actually do that. So that's what I do. Uh, uh, but when I when I'm out on tour, on my off days, I you know I like to read, and plus I've got a. We all have laptops that we can do set up almost our own studio right in a motel room so i'll bring out a laptop with me and i can do a certain amount of work that i can't get back home to do i can bring out with me and and at least get it to a point where when i get back home i've saved myself several hours and i can get right to work finishing up maybe a project or something but i, I pretty much kind of live music i like music it's I've never get grown tired of it, so along with, you know, the kind of having a home studio and being able to bring it out on the road with me, I get to, to do it any time I feel like doing it. Is there anyone
1: in the band that you feel closer to that you feel like is a closer friend of yours?
2: Well, I don't know. That's going to be a hard question to answer. I, uh, I, I don't know if I can... It's not that I don't want to say, I really feel close to all of them and and I don't think there's anyone that, uh, that I wouldn't like to be around at any, any time. Sometimes I hang around Robert and Ralph a lot just because of sometimes we go, well, like for instance, if we're rehearsing and, uh, we'll have several days in one town. And there'll be runner cars and things that we go to eat in, and we all, us through, me and Ralph and Robert, kind of like to eat the same type of the Southern cooking type food. So we'll we'll go to you know together to do that, and where other people will get in other groups and and go to the places they like to go to. And things like that. But now, if I was wanting to talk to somebody about music stuff or, or hang out with them for that reason, i talked talk to Ralph, I'm sorry, Mac McAnally or Pete Mayer or Jim Mayer. Because they, they uh, kind of do the same thing I do with our computers. You know, they're into the, the recording and thing a little bit more than some of the other guys in the band are. So I guess those people would be who I hang around with the most, but maybe just because of of a common interest in music and eating, I guess you (laughs) might say. Yeah. (laughs) Which can't be too bad. Do you have any
1: funny stories from the road? Like uh, I asked, uh, I think Robert Greenwich that one time, and he said he had a story, but it was – not suitable
2: for airplay. <laughs> I think you're going to find out with about anybody you're going to ask. Uh, I was trying to think of, maybe I can think of something in a minute and we'll get back to it. But, uh, but probably most of them are that way that we couldn't probably say too much and probably get you thrown off the radio station.
1: <laughs> too late. <Yeah. laughs> well, uh, I had a question about, uh, there was a band that you had, it's not around anymore, called The Bandits. Um, you had some really great cuts on there, and uh, you covered Last Date on there?
2: Yeah. Actually, I was just trying to, uh, The Bandits was a, a group that that I was playing with from Mississippi on some private shows. Because we all, uh, because of being part of Jimmy Buffett's Core Reefers, uh, A lot of the people that are Buffett, Jimmy Buffett followers, they know us as well as they know Jimmy, you know, because of his website. He's so, so kind to put all of us, not only on his website, but put links on his website to our websites. So along with that, we get asked to come out and play for certain venues, like some parrot head functions and, uh, different things. But, uh, one of the things that, that I was working with with the bandits is some insurance seminars that a friend of mine does from Mississippi. He's in, he sells, uh, like senior citizen 401k type of insurance and they have seminars where they want entertainment. So we put together this group called the bandits that I would come out and, and play with. There were singers in the group and all that. And then I'd also play some instrumentals. So when we got around to doing the album, well, they wanted me to do two or three instrumentals. So I had to try to come up with something that I thought people that that liked uh, the pedal steel, they hear me doing with Jimmy Buffett, but not necessarily the real country pedal steel. I had to try to come up with some instrumentals I thought that would fit both avenues and get songs that I thought people would recognize, like Last Date. And I think I played Country Roads and... So I think that's that's what a person needs to do that's not really a, a, a well-known instrumentalist like I, you know, like I'm not. I just, I'm known through Jimmy Buffett's, uh, you know, fans. So, so I think the best thing you do is play a recognizable song and play it to the best of your ability. And so that's kind of what well, my instrumentals, how they came about on that album. But now the Bandits band... It, uh, they were a lot of local musicians and from Mississippi and, and the people that was handling us was trying to get us booked in further away places and better places. And they couldn't always get off to do it, to travel, you know, because they were working people. They weren't professional musicians in the uh, sense of making their living with it like I am. And so. After a while, they just decided uh, they couldn't do it, so the bandits, as a band, kind of just kind of went by the wayside. But it wasn't because of ability or anything like that. It was just kind of a thing we we had to do to move on, to do what we needed to do, and that's how it kind of came to an end, the bandits part of it. But I still play the Parrothead shows, and I still work some of these seminars, you know.
1: And you play a lot with John Frenzy. Yeah, I've I do. have seen some shows with him.
2: Yeah, he's a real good friend of mine and has a band up in, uh, around P- in Pennsylvania. And, uh, we play a lot of, a lot of Parrothead shows, some things that are not Parrothead shows. If I happen to be in the area or, or something, he'll try to, uh, book a show or, or something or some function that I can come join him and his band. Sometimes we just play him and I. And But most of the time we use a band when we can because it just sounds, you know, fuller and much better.
1: So maybe you, you we were talking about some stories. Maybe you have a story from uh, the – what was the album that had God's Own Drunk
2: on it? That was uh,
1: – wasn't that the first album? Was it? I album? don't know if it
2: was, it was Living and Dying. Time. Yeah, I I think, Living and Dying and Three-Quarters.
1: Maybe you have an old yeah, story. well, from, I have a story about days. how
2: that – I mean, that actually was done – Even in the early days, though, uh, with with Jimmy Buffett's recordings, although it was done on what we call multi-track recorders, where you could your your part was on a separate track and you could go back and redo it if you didn't like it or whatever, we didn't really do a lot of that. They kind of wanted a fresh, open sound. I mean, and most times the things that you heard on there were just done in one pass through and. If you had a real glaring mistake, they, you might could back them into letting you <laughs> go back and repair that. So the whole world didn't have to hear it. But, uh, with gods on drunk, it was even more so. They brought in everything you hear on there was done at the same time. They brought in secretaries, people off the street, whatever they could to <laughs> just set around the studio. There was, there was so many people in the studio. We barely had room to get to our instruments, you know. And that's what he wanted. He wanted this to, it's almost like he was putting on a, a show with a crowd there for that one song. And that's how we record it. I don't even know if we actually the normal thing with running us uh, with recording a song is, is you listen to it and you write down the chords, and you might talk about who's going to play where and what, then you'll run through it maybe a couple of times before the red light actually comes on, in most cases. I don't even think we. I don't even sure we ran through that one. They turned the red light on and Buffett just. We knew the song. We were, we had taken the chords down, but it. Sometimes that's not like playing the song. You just write the chords down, but if unless you have a chance to actually sit there and play through it, to figure out what you're going to do and how you're going to do it, that makes a difference. But I think on that one, we just pretty much. He probably played it one time on his guitar and we wrote the chords down and they brought everybody in and we recorded. It kind of happened like that. So there was no, uh, that wasn't like, uh uh, 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 an audience track added later or anything. They were all right there in the studio.
1: <laughs> I always wonder what he, what he means when he says you missed it at the end. Do you know what I'm talking about? Do I? At the end of the album, he says you missed it. You know what I'm talking about? At the end of God's Own Drunk, it's the last song. He says, "You missed it."
2: I don't think I've ever noticed that.
1: <laughs> yeah, he says it. I I wondered if it was maybe a, like a they were. He thought the tape was stopped rolling or something.
2: <laughs> well, you know, I'll have to go back and listen to that. I, <laughs> I don't remember that happening, but I tell you, you know, that's that is. Uh, it very well could happen because there's a lot of things that went on. You know, I hear him later, and I wondered. <laughs> did we really do that? Or sometimes wondering why did we do that? You know, but you do a lot of things at the time that years later you <laughs> kind of wish maybe you hadn't. And hopefully, it. sometime you you're glad that you did though, because they turned out good. What's the best part about being Doyle Grishaf? Oh, just getting to do for all my life what I've wanted to do, and I guess. Not having to have actually held a job. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. I've, I've had to work in other aspects of the music business, but it's, I've been lucky that it's all been music related. I've had, you know, I mean, I've, I've worked in publishing companies. I've been a recording engineer for a while, but it wasn't that I had to stop playing music to do that. It kind of tied in with playing. Hmm. So I've been very lucky that I, I've been able, since I've been about 14 years old, to have made my living just playing music. The thing about this program and
1: the power of technology is it's able to go out all over the world. So my question for you is, what would you like to say to the world?
2: <laughs> say to the world. In, in, in any certain aspect? Anything. Uh, Well, that's kind of a, that's kind of a far out question. I, I don't even know if I could give, but I'm not really a, a politician or anything like that. So I don't know if I could give anything to the world except that I just enjoy being in this world. I think it's a great world if we could all learn to live in peace and understand each other. That's what I would say to the world is we just need to try to start thinking of each other is we'd like to be thought of ourselves and try to treat everybody the way we'd like to be treated. But when you get heads of states and I think politics and and a lot of other things that I probably shouldn't go into at this point <laughs> along with it that's that's what happens to communication between people that don't always speak the same language, they don't have the same religious beliefs. But it would be great if we could all get to the point of where we just live together under all those situations in peace and harmony.
1: Well, Doyle, I appreciate you uh, taking the time to talk to us.
2: Well, thank you. I enjoyed it, Paul. And uh, uh, I just hope we can do it again sometime. All right. All right. My, all right. my thank pleasure. You. Thank you.